Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. About 750 years before Christ walked on earth, Israel was in pretty bad shape. They were a spiritual mess. Not only had the Israelites fallen away from God, but they had fallen out among themselves, and the kingdom was split. There was the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. And the kingdom of Israel did not fare as well as the kingdom of Judah. Both, neither one of them, although neither one of them did very well at all. Judah managed to find a few good kings along the way. Israel couldn't find any good kings. Under the rulership of King Uzziah, though, the kingdom of Judah had achieved remarkable prosperity. Although at the same time of their prosperity, they were suffering tremendous spiritual bankruptcy. God moved upon a prophet named Joel to speak to the people of Judah and warn them because of their spiritual apathy of the coming judgment. If you would read the first chapter, you would learn of a plague and a famine that had swept through the land, and a plague of grasshoppers specifically. It had decimated the land. Joel uses that famine as an illustration to tell about the second chapter, the judgment that was going to come upon Israel if they did not change. And so using the metaphors and the, and the pictures of the plague of locusts, in the second chapter he begins to describe what it's going to be like whenever this enemy kingdom, and many commentators believe this would be a prophecy of Babylon. It's debatable, so I'm, I'm, I don't care who that was. It's very clear there was an enemy power that was going to sweep through the land. And he pictures the army almost like the locusts, the grasshoppers. He said, destruction is coming. This, this army is going to invade like a cloud of locusts. They're going to roll over mountains like chariots, they're going to eat their way through the country like a fire devouring the forest. They're going to swarm the city. They're going to climb over the walls. They're going to clo- crawl through the windows. The earth is going to tremble. The heavens will shake. Stars will stop shining. The day of judgment is going to be so intense, Joel says, nobody is going to be able to stand it. But the Lord says, it's not too late. There's still time to turn to me. Sound the trumpet in Zion. Call the people together and call a fast. Now that's the second time they're told to sound the trumpet. Blow the trumpet. The first time is blow the trumpet because your land is about to be overrun by the enemy. But the second time he says blow the trumpet and call the people together and tell them to fast and pray. It's not too late. The famine's already happened. The second one doesn't have to happen, but you need to turn to me. Tell the priests, go to the altar and cry out to the Lord. And Joel reminds the people that God is deeply concerned about their circumstances and their condition and their land. 
And he tells them that God is a God who works wonders and does great things. Sometimes it's very encouraging for us to remember who we're serving. He is the God that does wonders and does great things. Uh, Unlike the false gods that so many other people in the world serve. It's just a statue. It's just a, a powerless God. But our God is not like that. Our God is the God that does wonderful things. That sets him apart from all the other gods that people worship. And for Israel, they knew their God was clearly and powerfully distinguished from all the other false gods in the world. Their gods never led millions out of bondage. Their gods never personally escorted them through foreign lands with a towering pillar of fire to light the night and a visible cloud to lead them and shade them in the daylight. Their gods never parted waters and scattered the enemy. Remember who you're serving. You're serving the God that does wonders and does great things. And so Joel says, This God, though you have been decimated by the plague, Boy, you've been decimated by the famine. If you'll turn to me, he says, I can fix all of that. Those are just temporary things. But you're going to have to fix you. And if you turn to me, I can restore it all. I can make the vats flow full again. I can bring in the harvest. I can restore the years that the locust has eaten. But you have to give me a chance to do that. Turn back to me. I can make it so you will prosper and people will eat until they are satisfied again. And Joel reminds them this is the God that sends the former rain. That would be the spring rains to water the spring plants and bring a harvest. He sends the latter rains, and that would be the autumn rains, to water the crops in the fall. This is the God that sends the former and the latter rain, and he's in charge of this. And he takes care of it, and it all comes in its right time. And as Joel is explaining this to Israel, these more than seven centuries before Christ came, he suddenly is moved by the Lord to say this. And afterward, later, it'll come to pass. I will give my spirit to everyone. And I'm reading from a slightly different translation than you're accustomed to hearing. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. And in those days, I will give even my spirit to my servants, both men and women. Notice the careful language here. I will work wonders in the sky above and the earth below, and there will be blood and fire and cloud of smoke, and the sun will be turned dark. The moon will be as red as blood before the great and terrible day when I appear. Then the Lord will save everyone who faithfully worships him. He has promised there will be survivors in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and among them will be his chosen ones. Joel had no comprehension of the timetable. He went from telling them about the plague and the famine 
and the coming judgment if they didn't change. He went from telling them that God can fix what has happened to you and God can save you from what's going to happen to you to suddenly talking about something that would happen more than 700 years from the time he spoke it. Just in one verse, that's how far that changed. He had no clue of the timetable. The people hearing that had no clue of the timetable. But the reason that that passage that we rely on so much to explain what has happened in our day and time was connected to the history and what Joel was speaking contemporarily to the people is because he wanted us to see how what happened to them and what, how God was dealing with them applies in certain ways to the experience that we would one day have. There is a connection in those passages. So for Israel, they had suffered this plague and this famine that decimated their land. And God spoke through the prophet to warn them of a foreign power that would also come in judgment against them. But if you turn to the Lord, God will heal your land, and furthermore, if they would remain faithful to Him, He would in proper time pour out His Spirit upon them like they had never known. So He's speaking not just to the individuals, but He's speaking to Israel as it would pass from generation to generation. And they would remember this promise that was given to their forefathers that if you'll turn to God and you remain faithful to Him, one of these days, Israel is going to see the opportunity for God's Spirit to be poured out upon them. Every generation would look at that as a hope and a promise given to them. Now let's fast forward to the actual fulfillment of that prophecy. And we're also going to another familiar passage in Acts chapter 2. 120 followers of Christ were in Jerusalem, gathered together in one place, in one accord, according to the directions of Jesus. The Bible says they were in there in one accord, in unity. They were there in agreement. The Holy Spirit saw fit to inspire Luke to make sure we understood that they were not only gathered there, but they were gathered together in agreement. They weren't fussing. They weren't fighting. This might be the very first time that a group of Christ's followers of any size, since he's established a following, were ever together in one place in agreement. It might be the last time that any of Christ's followers are ever together in agreement. As much as I love to believe that our church is in agreement, as long as I, as much as I am enjoying more than any time in all of my years of pastoring the spirit of peace that rests upon our congregation, as Yes, as much as I know that we have a bare minimum of murmuring and complaining, and the reason I say a bare minimum is I don't hear it, I don't see it, but I know there's nooks and crannies where you can hide. So I'm making allowance. 
as much as I see that and appreciate and praise the Lord for it. We are strange human beings that just don't seem to be able to get together and 100% agree on anything. For instance, if I were to, as a pastor, say, would everybody here today please just put $1 in the offering, there would be one person at least that would not do it. It's doable, but we just, for some reason, there's always one or two or three that just don't seem to think it's important to do what everybody else is doing. Now, I don't think that's severe. I praise God we're not having the friction here. But it's just odd that human beings just find it almost impossible to be in unity and in agreement. But Luke says they were. And it's significant because when they were in one place, when they were in agreement, something happened that had never happened in all the history of mankind. There was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon those 120. And I will read that passage for you. Peter stood up and said, These men are not drunk, as you suppose. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Later, afterwards, I will give my spirit to everyone. I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And again, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. And it's just almost a word-for-word reiteration of Joel's prophecy. And as this happened, it says in that second verse of Acts, these are the things that accompanied this event. Suddenly, there was a noise from heaven like the sound of a mighty wind. Now, we have to understand by the words that are used there, it didn't necessarily have to be a wind. It could have been a wind, but I I think it's indicating more there was just a noise like a wind. And that would be extremely interesting to hear a windstorm and no wind. We've had some pretty severe gusts here in this area in the past few days. Sitting in my nice, cozy little home, I hear the wind whipping violently outside. And I have to run and open it up to see the trees swaying and the snow blowing because I know there's wind. Yet they heard this violent wind, the noise of a mighty wind. It filled the house where they were meeting. And then they looked. That's what they heard. And then they looked, and there were these various... Jets, tongues of fire that filled the room. Then they got organized. As they began to move around the room and land one upon each person that was there. What a sight. You look around and everybody's got this fire coming out of their head. What is happening? This noise, this fire, whatever's going on. And the Bible says the Holy Spirit took control of everyone and they began to speak whatever languages the Spirit enabled them or let them speak. Now Jerusalem at this time was abuzz with activity. 
this being the season of the Passover, Jews from everywhere, from foreign lands, were making their pilgrimage back to the holy city to celebrate their special feast. This would be customary for the Jews on the, this feast, that the males of the Jews would return to the city to celebrate this feast and the other feasts as well. This was not the largest feast. This would be the feast of the first fruits. But the Passover was the big one. They would come to that and it was estimated by the number of sacrifices that were made and the number of people who could be accommodated and fed at the sacrifices that it was maybe 2 million people showing up in this little city of 40,000. But here on the Feast of Pentecost, this Feast of First Fruits, the men of the people of Israel would come and they would bring a part of their harvest and they would give that to the Lord in hopes that sowing that to the Lord would mean they would have a great harvest to come. So here this little city swells, perhaps on this occasion some estimate, to a quarter of a million people. They were shoulder to shoulder. And these Jews from a variety of places, speaking a variety of different languages, were there noticing these 120 people. The Bible doesn't say they were in the upper room. They were gathered together in one place. Get the upper room image out of your mind. They were probably in the temple area. And that's the way that people who were going by noticed something was really strange happening. And they saw these people there and heard them declaring and speaking in languages that they could understand. You know how many years they had been coming to Jerusalem and never heard anything like this. You don't run into that many people from where you come from with your language, with your dialect. But here's this group of 120 people and they're speaking all these different languages and the people are mesmerized by it. How do we hear them? speaking in the language that we understand. And they were speaking praises to God. And they recognized it. There on that day of Pentecost that was scheduled in everybody's mind to go on just like it had gone on for centuries. It was very predictable. They knew the order of things for that day. But uh, just a little bit before 9 o'clock in the morning, God upset the whole order of the day of celebration. And the Holy Spirit was poured out on those 120 who were there. And the people took notice. And they heard them praising God in languages that they could understand. And not being able to explain it, They talked among themselves and they decided that these people had gotten into the hooch too early. They were acting silly and unpredictable. And that's when Peter stood up and he said, These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. So he wanted to make a correction there for all of history. It was not inebriation. It was the power of God moving upon them. By 9 a.m. this whole day had now been redirected by the power of God. Now it introduces a new era. And if we can use some of the things that Joel told us about that, 
We can understand what God expected of this new era. First of all, God intended for this era we're living in to be an age of the fullness of the Spirit. He said, I will pour out my Spirit, pouring it out, pouring it out, not drizzling, not sprinkling. I'm going to pour out my Spirit, an age of the fullness. Nobody had ever understood the fullness of God's Spirit In all of the Old Testament time, in all of the history of man, nobody had ever experienced, nobody knew what it was like. The Spirit would light upon people from time to time and empower them temporarily to accomplish something. But they didn't understand the fullness of the Spirit. Nobody had ever blazed this trail before. But here there's 120 people demonstrating what it means when God pours out His fullness upon you. If you're coming to church and you're just getting a tickle, you're not getting the fullness of the Spirit. There is a fullness here that makes a remarkable change in how you live and how you worship God. There's going to be this copious stream for the first time in all of man's history suddenly pouring out from heaven. And when Jesus, walking the face of the earth, attended the Feast of Tabernacles, there he would have observed what would have been a customary practice at that Feast of Tabernacles. The high priest would go down, take a vessel to the pool of Siloam, and dip it into the pool, fill it with water, and bring it back. There he would take this water, and he would pour it out before the Lord. This was a ritualistic prayer to God. Lord, send the rains when we need them. We pour this water out before you in a way of saying, God, don't let us go through drought. We need rains. We need the early rains. We need the latter rains. We depend on our crops for our livelihood. Take this as an offering and send the rains in due season. And when Jesus saw the high priest go through that ritual of fetching the water, pouring it out and praying. He stood up and he said, May I have your attention? I have a special announcement to make. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And out of his innermost being is going to flow rivers of living water. And this he spoke concerning the Holy Spirit, which had not yet been given. What an opportune time to talk about rivers. We're not talking about a cup of water. We're not talking about a vessel of water. We're not talking about just waiting and hoping the rains come. He said it's going to start flowing. It's not just going to be a sprinkle or a shower. Rivers are going to flow. It's not going to rain in heaven. Secondly, God intended this to be an age of inclusion and expansion upon all flesh. For nearly 2,000 years, the people of Judaism knew nothing but exclusion. They were separate from all other people. They were 
the way they dressed, the way they worshipped, the food they ate, the way they cut their hair was all to demonstrate their distinction from the rest of the world. They were separated from the rest of the world. They didn't want the rest of the world to be like them. They didn't want to be like the rest of the world. They were separated. They were set apart. They were forbidden by God to marry outside of their faith. It would not be His blessings upon them or His will for them to do that. It was all about being separate. It was all about being distinct. They didn't evangelize the world. There was no provision in the religion to go and evangelize and take any message to the world. It was just leave us alone. You go there, we'll go here, we'll serve God, we'll be fine. 2,000 years of exclusion. But Joel said to Israel, one day God is going to change all that, all of that. He, he didn't say, I'm going to pour out my spirit upon Israel. He said, I'm going to pour out my spirit upon all flesh. All flesh. And here's the way it's going to look. He said, I'm going to pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters who had no particular standing in the family. But he said, they are going to prophesy. Think about it. He said, on your old men, they're going to quit napping and start dreaming. Your young men are going to quit fantasizing and start seeing visions. Your handmaids and servants that have no standing in the community. Them, they're going to prophesy too. It was just a way of saying everybody of every rank, of every gender, the Holy Spirit was getting ready to cross boundaries. Men draw boundaries with denominational lines and the Holy Spirit comes and knocks them down and says, I'm here to pour out on all flesh. People draw political boundaries, but the Holy Spirit comes and says, anybody who thirsts and comes unto Jesus out of his innermost being is going to flow rivers of living water. People draw boundaries of all kinds of different things and gender boundaries and prejudice boundaries and the Holy Spirit is going to pour out upon all flesh third God intended this to be an age of power he said I will show wonders young men will see visions old men will dream dreams the common folk the laborers the blue collar workers the handmaids the servants standing in the flow of the mighty river of God and being used by him to speak forth the word of God prophesying power upon everybody it'll be an age of power the age of Judaism was not an age of power but whenever the Holy Spirit fell the declaration of God was, I want this to be an age of power. Number four, God intended this to be an age of great harvest. And everyone, the Bible says, who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. As that wall of separation between the Jews and the Gentiles is going to be dismantled, broken down. No longer going to be us and them. But it's going to be one new man, the body of Jesus Christ. Number three, let's talk about the actual outpouring. How are we to understand the last days? Peter defined the outpouring on the day of Pentecost as being the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy that said, Afterward, I will pour out my spirit in the last days. 
it shall come to pass. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. There are two concepts of last days that you must understand. Otherwise, you will be totally confused for the rest of your life. The first concept of the last days is what we call from Christ to Christ. Those are biblically designated the last days. That's the reason Bible writers can talk about the last days. That's the reason the writer of Hebrews can say that God hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son. From the advent of Christ, the coming of Christ, to the second coming of Christ, that is the last days. When you look at the history of man on earth, that is the last, maybe we could say, segment of time. Maybe we could say trimester. Maybe we could say quarter. It's that last era. We're in it. We were in it from the day that Jesus came as a baby. He came to announce now we're going downhill. Now we're on the end of the career of man here on earth. The bulk of time for man here has passed. And we are in now the last days. That's the first concept you have to grasp. It'll make sense out of many things you read in the Bible. Now, the second concept of last days that you have to understand is the last days of the last days. And that's the one where we know that the Bible says that in the last days, the trend is going to be for things morally to get worse and worse. And we see a lot of those things happening. And we have sometimes mistakenly and very shallowly, errantly, heard people say when they see some catastrophe happen, they say, well, this goes to prove we've been in the last days. Oh, duh, we've been there for 2,000 years. It doesn't go to prove anything. What proves we're in the last days when the Holy Spirit fell out on 120 people and you can say without any apology whatsoever, we are now in the last stretch. But, as you see things waxing worse and worse, we know that the last days of the last days are going to be perilous times. Keep those two things in mind. Because if we don't, we get to thinking that, well, he hasn't come yet, but we feel it's closer than it's ever been before, so evidently we're in the last days. And our forefathers of the 1800s, they weren't. Paul just thought he was, but he wasn't. They were all thinking, but they must... No, we all are. But things are going downhill fast. And Peter stood and said, This is the fulfillment that in the last days I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And then we have to go back and call up this concept that Joel used when he told the people, God is a God that works great miracles and does great things. And he is the God that will make sure that you have the rain when you need it. He's the God that makes sure that you have the early rain, the former rain, the spring rain. He's the God that makes sure you have the latter rain, the fall rain. And when God said that he would pour out his spirit in the last days, he meant from that time when Jesus came in the first 
appearance that during that entire period of time until he returns again, God said, my business is going to be pouring out my spirit upon all flesh, every generation. I'm going to keep on pouring. Rivers are going to flow during this time. We're living in the age of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We're living in the age of the outpouring. It didn't just happen with Peter, and therefore it's over, it's done. Joel didn't give a prophecy 750 years before to tell about a one-time event that happened on the day of Pentecost, a flash in the pan. He said there's going to come a time Whenever, for an ongoing period of time, when everybody in that era, those last days from the coming of Jesus to the coming of Jesus, is going to be ready and available and candidate for the infilling of the Holy Spirit. They're going to walk in that age when they have the power, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit going. We're still there. But when we look around and we see what's happening in Christianity, can we help but wonder if we're in the summertime between the former rain and the latter rain? Or we wonder if for some reason we have hit the drought. And we wonder sometimes, Lord, is it ever going to rain again? It rained on the day of Pentecost. And then the church went into a long, dry period. There were people who testified to being baptized in the Holy Spirit periodically throughout the history of the church. Luther is said to have been a tongue talker, according to actual historical records, 16th century. You've got people like Tertullian from the 3rd century, who writes about the gifts of the Spirit, including specifically things that worked in him and the, and the interpretation of tongues in Tertullian. Novation of the 3rd century, 3rd century theologian, who wrote, writes supporting documents concerning the gifts of the Spirit in the church. 4th century theologian Hilary testified of speaking in tongues. Chrysostom of the 5th century. And you've got these these occasions throughout church history, but we did not see the church at large experiencing and walking in the outpouring as it began to dry up. That proves one thing. You can live in the age of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and not necessarily be standing where it's pouring out. There can be dry periods, although God is pouring, it doesn't mean everybody is really receiving or believing. But then in the early 1900s, something happened. People began to get hungry for what the Bible spoke of. And they got together and they began to study the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And they prayed and said, Lord, we don't know what to do. We're just like the people on the day of Pentecost. But Lord, whatever we're reading in the Bible, if this is the age of the fullness of the Spirit, we want this. And in the middle of this prayer meeting, God began to fill them with the Holy Spirit. It just spread out to California, to Los Angeles, to Azusa Street. And there Seymour started a church. 
And people started coming in from all over the United States to find out what was happening in this little church at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And then hot spots around the world in the early 1900s. And then Pentecostal churches being born. We suddenly became divided into two camps over the issue of the Holy Spirit. This this watershed moment comes in the early 1900s where the outpouring of the Holy Spirit happens again. They had gotten hungry for God. They wanted to be a part of what God planned for this age. And suddenly denominations are divided. On this side are the non-Pentecostals, and on this side are the Pentecostals. And the Pentecostal churches struggled along in tiny congregations. They were the object of ridicule. They were not widely accepted in religious circles, in church circles. But here they were just plodding along, wondering you know, if, if they were ever going to get any traction as a Pentecostal church until we hit the 1960s. And here comes this other wave and this charismatic renewal. And the Pentecostals are saying, finally, we've got some people that are understanding what we've been talking about all along. And this outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the charismatic movement, that was the Holy Spirit. He's the one that doesn't recognize denominational boundaries. He's the one that doesn't check the name on the church door before he goes in there. And pastors from churches like Baptist churches, Catholic priests and nuns, Episcopalian priests, Lutheran ministers, congregations, they were going to Bible studies and hearing about this Holy Spirit. And they came out filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and went back into their church to excitedly tell everybody, guess what happened to me? And they kicked them out. Because we were so sharply divided between the Pentecostals and the non-Pentecostals. But this phenomenon just began to happen. And it took over the United States and it took over the world. And I wrote a friend of mine who was what I would consider one of our wonderful, one of our great Pentecostal theologians today. He, his, his doctorate is in church history. And I said, please share with me. I'm trying to put together my sermon. I told him the title of my sermon. I said, I'm preaching on a sermon called, Will It Ever Rain Again? And I said, please tell me where the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is today. It does not appear as it's happening in the United States. Could you share with me? And he wrote back, and I want to read exactly what he wrote to me, and only part of it. I won't read the entire email. He says, quite honestly, Scott, my question to him was, where do you see the church, the Pentecost, thriving and growing in the world? His answer is this. Quite honestly, the thriving question is one of the most difficult to answer. The growing question is relatively easy. The Pentecostal movement is growing by leaps and bounds throughout parts of Africa. He says, I think of Ghana, Malawi, Nigeria, South America, South Africa in particular. I know that it has grown a great deal in the Congo and in Uganda as well. In Asia, it continues to grow in China. And the Pentecostal church is growing in India. He said, in the case of India, it is stirring the Hindu fundamentalists into a frenzy. And we are paying a great price for the success of Pentecostalism in India. When I speak with missionaries who work with, in Muslim nations, 
He says, I hear very many positive statements from our missionaries. But because of their situation and the danger of their lives, we have very few statistics to back up what is happening. It's word of mouth, but nobody can find out because you know what they're doing to Christians in Muslim countries. And they're very concerned about that. But Pentecost is having an impact in the middle of these places. And he said, if I were to lift up two or three places where it has cost people to be Pentecost... And where Pentecost is thriving, and that's the reason it makes a difference between thriving and growing. Growing doesn't necessarily mean thriving, because thriving has to do with being healthy and mature. And now he's speaking about, if I can speak of two or three places where it is thriving, he says, I pick Romania, where Pentecostalism is now the second largest non-Orthodox church in the region. These people have endured hardship right up to the present and they continue to thrive and their congregations are growing because of the hardship they're going through. He said, I would look at the poorest of the poor in South Africa where we are now seeing thriving megachurches that are black founded and black led and while some of them buy into the prosperity gospel, which is unfortunate, he said, many of them do not. Yet both are fully engaged in what it means to be Christian in a decidedly unchristian society. They're building schools for their kids. They're offering choruses in parenting. They're keeping their finances straight. They're investing in the future. Classes on using the computer for a variety of things and etc. In a sense, they're doing social justice, but not in the name of a social gospel, but on the idea of loving their neighbor as themselves. When I look at Ghana, Pentecostalism seems to be thriving everywhere. It's impossible in Ghana, he said, to walk down the street, a single business street, without seeing a business that does not reflect what it means to be Pentecostal. It's getting into the stores. It's getting into the markets. They are seeing it in their community. But right now, my question is, where is the spiritual reign in the United States? We're concerned about the mounting evidence of a spiritual drought. California is going through a drought right now. You've seen that on the news. 2013 went down as the driest year in the state on record. The state averaged just four inches of rain in the past 13 months. Lake beds are drying up. People are walking on the lake bed where they used to boat and swim. Streams and rivers are dwindling down to a trickle. Wildfires are rampant. It's so dry in the state. Mountains that are typically this time of year covered with snow are now barren rock. And the water content of the snowpack in the mountains is only 20% of what it needs to be. And since the state relies on snowmelt for their water year-round, this drought is going to have an ongoing impact for a long time to come. They desperately need rain. The place is drying up. The place is burning up. But I'm not concerned about just physical famines. I'm concerned about the spiritual famine that we're seeing around us. We need an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that rocks the church back to life. 
that motivates young people to quit tracing trends and fads and materialism and gets on fire and starts searching for answers in God. That quits trying to emulate all the things they see on TV and in the movies and on YouTube and on Facebook and suddenly their heart turns to God and says, we want to be like Jesus. We want to be like Jesus. We're tired of being like the crowd. We need an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that reaps a harvest of souls straight from the portals of hell. We need an outpouring that moves the elderly from winding down to getting wound back up again. We need people of every variety prophesying and speaking the words of the Lord. But I'm wondering, will it ever rain again? The fields are dusty. The streams are drying up. Will it ever rain again? The church used to be the center of community activity. Now it's the laughing stock of the world. And I wonder, is it ever going to rain again? There is a vital condition if we're ever going to see the latter rain. I remember Joel saying he's the God that sends the former rain. He can send it again. But I remember Joel saying you better be seeking after him. You better get your house in order. If you get your house in order, he'll send the latter rain. He'll restore the years that the locusts have eaten. But there is a vital condition. And my friend that I wrote and asked him about the state of Pentecost in the world And I said, I am preaching, will it ever rain again? And he concluded his email to me. And he said, Scott, it'll never rain again unless you have an anticipation. Jesus said, go into Jerusalem. And can I just paraphrase it? And anticipate. We talk about tarrying. It's just waiting. I do a lot of tarrying in my life. But I'd rather do a lot of anticipating. That's different from just waiting. There will never be another rain unless we anticipate. What did you expect when you walked into this church today? Are you anticipating that God's going to be here and pour out His Spirit upon all flesh? Are you hungry? Are you desirous? Are you looking forward to the outpouring? Are you thirsty? Are you dry? Are you anticipating? And we might come many Sundays and not see the outpouring, but you can't quit anticipating. Those people waited in Jerusalem for 10 days not having a clue what they were going to see, what they were going to experience, but they couldn't quit anticipating. He said, wait until you be endued with power. And they waited and they anticipated. And every little thing that happened to them, they had to question. I wonder if that was it. Was that it? Did you feel that? Was that it? Was that the power? They wondered. You can think that. You think you know. But when it finally happens, you know you know, don't you? Until that time, whenever they heard that mighty rushing wind, when they saw those tongues of flame, and they said, this is it. Yeah, this is it. This is it. This is it. And Peter stood up and said, this is it. This was what Joel was talking about. This is it. Are you anticipating? 
And I'm asking my church to make 2014 a year of anticipation of a moving of the Holy Spirit like Westside has never seen in all of its history. Would you anticipate with me? Are you anticipating? Lord, I thank you for the move of the Holy Spirit that I felt today. But God, it's just a sprinkle. It's just a taste of what can happen. It's delicious, it's good, but it's only the margins.